Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Happy New Year. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Canadian best-selling author Andrew Hallam on the show. His first book, Millionaire Teacher, is currently the number one bestseller in the investment and portfolio management category on Amazon when I check today. He is one of the world's most prolific financial wellness speakers, and over the past 16 years, he has given hundreds of talks in over 30 different countries, espousing research on financial wellness, sound investing, and life satisfaction. He has been investing in the stock market for 32 years, having built a million-dollar portfolio on a school teacher's salary when he was in his late 30s. Andrew is the international best-selling author of Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expat. His latest book is Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. And his book, Balance, just released this past week. So definitely check it out. I found it extremely enjoyable. and I definitely picked up some really good best practices from it. Now, as a financial journalist, Andrew has written for numerous international publications, including investment columns for The Globe and Mail, Canadian Business Magazine, Money Sense, and many more. He's been quoted by Forbes and The Wall Street Journal and has been a guest on numerous podcasts, radio shows, and television networks, including CNBC. We cover a lot of areas in this interview, but since Andrew achieved financial independence in his 30s, I especially want to ask him how we Canadians can live off our portfolios long term without depleting them prematurely, while also maximizing the income that we are able to withdraw from them. We discuss what to do when it comes to our withdrawal strategy in different economic environments, and we discuss how one can best use the 4% rule and how we can modify it depending on what happens in the markets. We also talk about one of my favorite topics, variable withdrawal strategies, which help us maximize how much income we can take out of our portfolio every year while not running out of money. And just a quick announcement before the interview, I will be releasing new free guides and resources in the near future on how to optimize your investments, your financial planning, as well as some optimization strategies on how we can all pay as little tax as possible here in Canada. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to go to this podcast webpage, which is buildwealthcanada.ca, sign up anywhere on the front page, and you'll get exclusive access to all the upcoming guides for free as they get released. So again, to get that for free, just sign up anywhere over at buildwealthcanada.ca and enjoy the free content. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite, Cornell. I really appreciate it. So for anybody that hasn't read your books or is hearing about you for the first time, can you tell us a bit about yourself, especially when it comes to the world of investing, financial planning, and retirement? I was really fortunate when I was going to university, I had a summer job where I was working at a bus depot and I met a mechanic there who happened to be a millionaire. So I was 19 years old and he told me, look, if if you become financially literate, you don't necessarily have to make loads of money. You can do a career that you enjoy doing and let your money work for you. So I started learning about money when I was about 19. That's when I started to invest. I became a school teacher. And so I taught high school English. But as I was learning, I was reading all kinds of personal finance books um, and, and academic studies relating to finance as well. I started to write about it. Like I wanted to be able to share it. So I started writing for magazines like Money Sense. So here I was working uh, by day. I was teaching English, high school English. And by night, I was putting these articles together, which I just absolutely loved. 
And then uh, in 2002, I decided to take a year off teaching. It was a deferred salary leave, which essentially gave me a year away from my job. And at the end of that year, the job was promised me upon my return. So I chose to just travel. I wanted to see as much of the world as I could in that year. And instead of going back to Vancouver Island to go back to the same school, and this was totally unplanned, like I really planned to go back to that same school, I ended up getting an opportunity to teach high school English at Singapore American School. And so the principal of the school that I was at on Vancouver Island ended up getting a job there the year before, sent me an email, and he said, this place is great. So got a job there teaching high school English. And, uh, and then eventually high school personal finance. So I continued to write articles about investing uh, as I was teaching English. And because most of the teachers there weren't, uh, actually all of the teachers there, they weren't contributing to any kind of defined benefit pension. The Americans weren't able to contribute to social security. They really relied on, on obviously, their, their money in terms of uh, their investment abilities, uh, their savings abilities for their futures. So, I mean, you could work overseas your entire career, not pay into a defined benefit pension, not pay into any kind of uh, social platform. Then as a result of that, you move back home to your home country and you recognize that the government's giving you nothing. So what is really interesting too, Cornell, is that when you live overseas, like when you're in an area like the Middle East or Singapore, often where salaries are a little bit higher and the people know that, you know, the financial services industry knows that these people have to save money or, or they're completely hooped, like they have to invest it. So they swarm in on these areas and often with the worst financial products you can imagine. So I was seeing friends buying stuff that was just like, um, take a whole life insurance policies and multiply all the badness by 10. And you've basically got what you know, a lot of my colleagues and friends were buying. So I, I wanted to share what I was learning with them. So I would be giving them like personal finance books. I'd be buying them. This is long before I wrote my own. And I, I'd go down and I'd spend thousands of dollars, go down to the bookstore and figure, I'll oh, pick the, the simplest books I could find. So, you know, I bought John Bogle's book, A Little Common Sense on Investing, um, How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street, uh, The Coffee House Investor, lazy person's guide to investing. I bought anything and everything I could and I would be gifting them to people. So I'd come like, uh, I show up at school like with uh, two dozen books. I'd say they're in my classroom, come and get them. And people were really happy about that. And then I'd bring people to my classroom and we do these like book talks. And I'd ask people like, so did you guys understand the books? And everybody said, yeah, 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 totally understood them. So then as a teacher, I started asking questions, like just to see like how much do they understand? And it didn't take long, Cornell, before, and these were smart people, obviously, but it didn't take long before I realized in most personal finance books, there's jargon that's used that the average person just doesn't understand. And so eventually, you know, they started saying to me, because I guess in one sense, I was putting them on the spot by asking them questions and eventually a lot of them said, well, you know, there's this part we don't really understand, or there's this we don't understand. And so I was a bit frustrated because I picked the simplest books that I could. And I spoke to Ian McGugan, who was the editor of Money Sense at the time. And I said, Ian, I've spent like $4,000 on books for my colleagues, just gifting them out and they don't understand them. Um, I mean, yeah, they get the gist of it, but there were just things that I thought were really important that they didn't get. 
And so Ian said to me, well, you've got one option, you know, like write your own book and use those people that have never read a personal finance book before as your gauge, as you build the book, which I thought was a great idea. Super humbling, super humbling. Cause here I was, I'd been writing finance magazine store. I, I'm a teacher. So I think yeah, I'm going to be able to explain things. Well, um, I write for you know, writing for money sense magazine, but when you look at the readership of something like Money Sense Magazine, for example, there they tend to be people, and same with the, the business section of the Global Mail, they tend to be people who already have an interest in finance. So you give that stuff to the average college-educated person who hasn't had any exposure to investing or to the stock market, and there will be a lot of terms that they just don't understand, like uh, a 100% equity portfolio. Well, what the heck is that, right? right? Like a lot of people don't get that. or like to earn the market's return or just the idea mm. of trying to beat the market. These were terms that people stumbled upon. Like even with John Vogel's book, little, little book of common sense investing in the very first page, he said, a lot of people feel that their purpose is to try to beat the market. Mm-hmm. The average person doesn't know what that is. Like, what does that mean? That was the yeah. very first page. So I found myself like, okay, I've got to try to write something that people will, I think maybe understand a little bit better. So that's what I did when I, I wrote uh, the book Millionaire Teacher. So I did the first edition of that in 2011, uh, and then the second edition of that in 2017, and then to create something that was specific for expatriates. So this is what we generally call people who are living outside their home countries. I would get these emails or people on my blog, they'd send me a message and they'd say things like, you know, I'm British and I live in Cairo. How do I build a portfolio of index funds? And I realized, oh, Okay, now this is an entirely different thing. So I wrote a couple of books for expatriates, specifically showing them also how to build portfolios of index funds. And then my wife and I, my wife wanted a a break in 2014. So she wanted to take like a year off. And so we figured, well, we'll do that. But one year led to two, which led to three, which has led to seven or eight now. So we are, I guess, officially globally nomadic. So we travel. I still write personal finance articles. Uh, I write a weekly column for a firm called Asset Builder. And uh, I sell the same story to a brokerage in Luxembourg called Swiss Quote. I write monthly, about once a month for the Globe and Mail. And uh, the speaking, speaking requests started to really build up, uh, especially during this sort of last eight years that we were traveling. So We've been doing a lot of uh, traveling to other countries, speaking at corporations, speaking at banks, insurance companies, and international schools, showing people how to effectively build uh, a low-cost portfolios of ETFs and give them uh, you know, a broader sense of how much they might need for retirement uh, and how to think holistically about money. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. In your book, I was mentioning this before we went online, a Millionaire Teacher is, I remember when I was first getting started investing years ago. That was one book that I kept coming in contact with and having recommended to me over and over and over again by people that I trust. And so I was like, okay, clearly this has got to be on my short list. I've got to read this along with other, because I did a similar thing to you where I kind of found all the books I could that I, you know, heard are good from reputable sources. And I 
read them, right? And and then yours kept coming up over and over again. And at first I was kind of reluctant to read it, to be honest, because it's called Millionaire Teachers. So I was like, oh, is this one of those like get rich quick? You know, I'm going to teach you how to be a millionaire kind of book. So like, I don't want that. I want to learn about investing. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh no, because Andrew is actually a teacher. Uh, and so th- that's why he, you know, Millionaire Teacher. And then, and then, yeah, I got, I read that book so quickly. I was so into it and it, and it became kind of my, one of the staples now that when someone asks me what books do I recommend, I mean it's 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 always mentioned uh, in that conversation every single time. So yeah, definitely, um, d- definitely, I appreciate your contribution to sort of can, in my case, you know, Canadians because that's who this audience is, uh, but also you know people from around the world that I think it's applicable to. Um, on on a kind of a, a side note, you mentioned the terms and how there's these terms that we kind of being in the space maybe take for granted that people know what they are, and you mentioned some of them people don't actually know. Um, one thing that I, I'm kind of curious to get your take on is the definitions of defined benefit pension plans and defined contribution pension plans. In your experience, do people actually know the difference between the two? Because sometimes someone asks me a question and I start answering it. And when I mention like, oh, you know, what kind of, well, what kind of pension do you have at work, if at all? You know, I I almost get the sense like they're they're not re- like you know they they don't actually know <laughs> uh, but they just don't want to tell me because you know and, and i feel like i'm assuming because i'm like oh of course everyone knows what kind of pension they have but is that a bad assumption do you think from your experience i think it's uh no i think your your assumption is probably quite accurate you okay know, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know so okay even those that do you know i was just recently on the i think it was the choose fi canada facebook group and there was a guy and he was on there and he was complaining. He was really upset. His wife's a nurse and she has a defined benefit pension, but he didn't know it. So, you know, she's been a nurse for a few years and all he knows is that some money mysteriously disappears from, from, from the paycheck. And he says, well, this is such a pain in the ass. Um, and I want that money. I want to be able to invest that money. This is like, this is a total ripoff. And I want I was, out. I want out. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was gently trying to say to him, Hey, look, dude, like this is like a, a government defined benefit pension. Um, and it's, it's actually gold. Like it's really, really, really good. So I was trying to explain it to him. Uh, and I suspect that if he didn't know what it was, his wife may not have known either. There was a, a friend of ours, and this is an extreme case. So, I mean, there are going to be people listening here who are government workers and teachers, and they're like, well, of course we know what our divine benefit pension is. But uh, but my wife and I, this is a total extreme case, became friends with, uh, or are friends with this woman who retired in the States. And she'd worked her entire career as a teacher and had, you know, contributed to a defined benefit pension scheme. And her state had a really good, solid one. You know, it was like, you know, paid something like 80% of her inc- of her average income over the past five years uh, indexed to inflation. So when she retires, she's okay. pretty much set, right? Um, <laughs> and th- this is going to sound really crazy, but she didn't even know that she had it. So <laughs> just, mm. money's not talked about often. So somebody had told her, hey, look, like, Kathy, did you know that you can retire next year with this full pension? She's like, what do you mean? Um, wow. She didn't even know. And I, I know you're going to have listeners who are listening to me just going, well, how crazy is Kathy? Uh, but if there's Kathy out there, there are probably loads of other Bill, Tony, and Bob's out there too, who likewise are in either that situation or perhaps not really understanding the difference, as you say, between a defined contribution pension, whereby essentially money that you are contributing and it's it's more or less investment related, like you will get this pod at the end of the day versus defined benefit pension where you are going to be getting 
virtually based on a calculation, a set amount of monthly income uh, upon a certain date for your future in, you know, in perpetuity, as long as you live and or your spouse lives, depending on what, um, you know, what package you, you end up uh, choosing. Mm-hmm. Thanks for defining it. I was actually just about to, to do that. I was like, okay, we're talking about it. And here we are <laughs> talking about how we shouldn't assume. And we're assuming that people listening. Know. And I know a lot of the, like a lot of the listeners that listen to the show are, have been studying this for quite a bit now. And, and I would say probably 90 plus percent of them already know, but yeah, just to also be kind of, you know, beginner friendly. I, I think I'm, I think it's good to, to mention the definition. So thank you for explaining that. But yeah, I mean, that, that's such a big, uh, that's a total game changer, a life changer, right? If you know, you have one versus the other. I mean, that totally changes the game in terms of how much you have to save and invest and um, how risky your investments can be and, and that kind of a thing. So like, like your whole portfolio allocation gets impacted by that, right? So um, yeah, so, so thank you very much for, uh, for mentioning that. And now a quick message from one of our sponsors. I get a lot of questions from listeners of the show if I know of a good organization or person that can help them optimize their finances and answer any questions that they may have. I spent a lot of time researching on who I can actually wholeheartedly recommend and use myself when it comes to financial coaching. And as you know, there is a lot of conflict of interest here in Canada where you can easily fall into the trap of going with a financial planner or financial advisor, thinking that they have your best interest at heart, but really they're just trying to persuade you to buy some expensive investment product from them so that they can earn their hefty commission. So the organization that I personally use and recommend for coaching and financial optimization is called Enriched Academy. They are as legitimate as it gets. They actually coach Canadian police officers and have actually been implemented by the government of Alberta to be in their schools teaching financial literacy. And they're already in over 400 schools and colleges as well. So what's really neat is that their students like myself actually track the results of the coaching. And so to date, on average, the Canadians that they've coached have increased their passive income by over $2,000, have increased their net worth by over $44,000, increased their credit score by 25 points so you can get better rates on mortgages and loans and reduce their advisor fees by 1.25% on average. And as you know, if you've listened to past episodes, that 1.25% savings can easily save you tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary investment fees over your investment lifetime. Now, they don't sell any investment products, so they are totally unbiased, which is a key reason why I decided to take part in their coaching myself, as their advice is 100% geared towards benefiting you as opposed to trying to earn some commission on the side. So the special page that they set up for Build Wealth Canada listeners to get a free one-on-one live assessment call is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. Give it a shot. It's free and there's no obligation or anything like that if you try them and don't think it's a good fit. Now, I was skeptical at first because I've already been optimizing my finances for many, many years and applying what I've learned from the different guests that I've had on this podcast. But even after just one coaching session, my coach Alana was already able to find some optimizations that I could implement. So definitely give it a shot. They made it as risk-free as possible with the free assessment call and they They also have a really generous refund policy if you do decide to actually sign up for paid coaching. And so that link again for the free assessment call is buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. And now back to the show. Now, so you're someone that has achieved financial independence uh, many years ago and has had to learn how to live off your portfolio indefinitely in a sustainable fashion. So just to set the groundwork and for somebody that hasn't read your books before, can you tell us what kind of investments your portfolio consists of that has allowed you to do this and retire early? 
Well, I guess to back up, first of all, um, I actually don't live on my investments. Okay. And so when we, when we ended up quitting our jobs, you know, it was meant to be just for a year and we figured we'd go back to teaching because we really liked that. Like I loved, I loved it. Um, it didn't feel like it was work for me. It just felt like fun. Um, and my wife said, you know, let's take this break. And, but we were financially independent. And I suppose, you know, by definition, in terms of people looking at FI, I guess I was FI by my mid thirties, but I didn't really have a sense of like, oh, I want to quit my job because to me, it, it was just a lot of fun. So I continue to earn income. So I, as I mentioned, I write for Asset Builder uh, and then my, with my speaking, there's uh, added income associated with that. There's their book royalties. So I haven't actually had to look at the portfolio from that that practical sense of how much can I actually withdraw each year. I mean, obviously, it's really nice knowing that I don't have to earn any of this income. And I could live on actually a really a fairly small percentage of the portfolio. So but but I do like the 4% rule. I do like it. I know that um, it is really interesting when we're looking at studies. And so those of you who aren't aware of the 4% rule, essentially what it indicates is back-tested studies suggest that you can withdraw an inflation-adjusted 4% from your portfolio each year, giving you the highest statistical odds of not running out of money during a 30-year retirement. So for example, let's say you have $100,000. In your first year of retirement, you could withdraw 4% of that, which equals $4,000. So really, that's what your $100,000 portfolio is worth. It's worth $4,000. In year two, the idea is you look at what was inflation. Let's say inflation was 2% that year. You would then withdraw 2% more than $4,000. So I don't have a calculator here, so I'll make it up. Let's assume it's $4,105. And so you continue to do that, giving yourself an inflation-adjusted return uh, or sort of an inflation-adjusted withdrawal such that you can live on that. So that's generally the idea of it. Now you mentioned a thirty-year time frame, which is, I guess, the big criticism of it, in particular for early retirees. Like you mentioned, you were five in your thirties. Um, for us, it was the same kind of thing. Um, so, is there a certain process or variation or other withdrawal strategy that you think is more suitable for those that are early retired? That doesn't necessarily have to be someone in the thirties. Like anything non-traditional retirement age. So, I don't know, maybe something like under fifty or, or under sixty. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have had thoughts on that. One thing, I guess, just to look at something, to me, what's what's really interesting is, you know, you'll look at all kinds of studies that will be saying, oh, the 4% rule is outdated. So maybe it's 3.3% or we suggest it's 3% or whatever it is. The, the, actually, the biggest risk of the 4% rule is actually dying with too much money. Right. Um, so even, even when you look at someone retiring earlier, you know, someone having more than a 30-year retirement, um, even when you look at someone withdrawing inflation adjusted four percent and not adjusting that at all, even when you do all of those things, odds are actually better that you'll die with more money than you initially retired with than than the odds that you'll actually run out. So what they do, and they say it doesn't work, what they're doing is they're looking at something like say Monte Carlo scenario, and they're working at worst case scenarios too, where they're combining all of these worst case scenarios 
and saying, oh, actually, if we had inflation like we had in the 1970s, and then we retired on the eve of a market crash like we had in 1973, and someone withdrew an inflation adjusted 4%, that money would have run out here at 20, after 28 years, instead of you know it lasting the full, the full 30 years. Or they're looking at, say, bringing in a 1929-like crash with high inflation after that. So there's, there are a couple of interesting things here. And people say, well, it doesn't work anymore. What they're doing is they're looking at the worst case scenario. Even when you look at all of these things, you factor all of them in, like I said from the very onset, there are higher odds of you actually dying with more money than there are you running out. So it's not like it doesn't work anymore. But I do like and I do think it's really important to have that sense of like a conservative nature with respect to this because anything can happen. Like next year, we really could get a 1929. And we really could get uh, inflation rates running at 10 or 12%. We've had that before. So why, why can't we have that again? Um, and in that case, yeah, it's, there's an entire possibility that maybe based on the 4% inflation adjusted rule, you do run out of money after 27 years. But what I like is just something really simple, I think, Cornell, in that when the markets drop, so let's say you've got inflation adjusted uh, 4% withdrawal, and that's what you're starting with. And so someone has $100,000 they retire and they pull out $4,000 during that first year because that's 4% of the 100,000. And then if in the second year of their retirement, the market drops, let's say just your portfolio drops, period. Right? So it doesn't have anywhere between 1%, negative 1% or negative 20%. doesn't matter, 30%, negative 30. To actually just withdraw less money during that down year. I mean, so, so this makes so much sense and it's not complicated and it ensures a couple of things. Obviously we get down markets. They just, they happen, right? You're going to get periods where statistically speaking, uh, probably one in three years will see your portfolio drop. I mean, the last 10 years have been weird because really we've just had like, yeah, gains upon gains upon gains. People are like, yeah, this doesn't. It's been a fun anymore. ride. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, no. I mean, the reality is, you know, you can get two or three or four years in a row where markets drop. So when you get excess, you know, you often get something that balances out that excess. So the reality is, you know, over a lengthy period of time, so over let's say a thirty-year period, one out of say every three years, you're going to probably have a market decline. So your portfolio will drop in value during one out of every, say, three years. But when it does, withdraw a little less than you did the previous year. So don't do an inflation-adjusted withdrawal where you withdraw a little bit more, you know, as, as, as you know, calculating inflation and withdraw a little bit more than you did the previous year. Instead, give yourself maybe like a 15% wage cut. Think of it that way. So if you withdrew, you know, $4,000 one year and the following year the markets dropped, withdraw whatever 3700 that year instead of 4200 so instead of inflation adjusted increase just pull back 10 or 15% and i think just something that simple cornell would ensure that the portfolio lasts at least i say when i say at least a 30 year duration i'm really thinking it would last uh, a, it, it should last as long as you're going to last if you did that mm-hmm. And you're saying even if you're doing an early, let's say you're doing a 60-year retirement instead of a traditional 30, you would. it sounds like you would still recommend that approach in that scenario as well. 
Just you have to be willing to pull those different levers, one of which, for example, spend less. And then there's other levers you can to do pull as well, right? Like move to a lower cost of living country, maybe do a little side income, things like that, right? Is that kind of the the approach you take in order to be able to weather those storms, those, let's say, 30% drop storms? Yeah, it could be. I mean, it doesn't even have to be as dramatic as moving to another country because I think most people are going to be able to have enough wiggle room to give themselves a 15% pay cut right? and and stay where they are. And if you're that like on the edge, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Right, right. right. So most people should be able to take a, a 10 or 15% of wage cut and then still be able to survive. So, but you know, some of the other things you talked about, if you are a bit more, um, you want to be more mobile and you really decide, you know what? I'm, uh, you know, markets are down 20% and I don't want to take a wage cut this year. You know, I don't want to do that. Um, Andrew suggests a pretty good idea, but I think maybe moving to Mexico for 10 months sounds like a better idea. So, you know, you cut your costs of living by about 60%. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the money that you're spending in Canada, you know, you could probably spend, let's say you're spending half that in Mexico and living better. Uh and building life experience in the process. Like it's not just something that you would do just to save money. Like you'd actually have to like to travel. You'd have to enjoy different cultures. You'd have to want to, you know, sacrifice that Canadian winter to spend that time on Puerto Vallarta's beach. I mean, it sounds horrible, but you'd have to be able to make that sacrifice and enjoy (laughs) that sacrifice. (laughs) That's great. I like that. Um, Now let's look at the, the other type of scenario or the other extreme. So we said, okay, we have a big market crash using the 4% rule. There's a big crash. That's a 30% drop, 40% drop. Here's different things you can do at, so that you can still actually use the 4% rule in a way. You just have to be flexible as opposed to mindly, mindlessly withdrawing that amount, no matter what happens in the markets and mindlessly spending the same amount. You know, When the market's 20%, you're spending the same amount as if the market's down 20%, right? Obviously, you know, having that flexibility, like you said, is critical. But what happens, let's say, in another, in, in a more, I guess, probable scenario where the markets have actually done even just average or, or well, but let's, let's assume just, you know, average, they've gone up, let's say, I don't know, 8% uh, annually per year. They've, they, you know, on average, they're not, you know, really doing dropping. Now your portfolio is much larger. So, you know, maybe you started with a million dollar portfolio, you were going to do 4%. So you're thinking 40K a year, even with the inflation adjustments, let's fast forward five, 10 years. Let's say now you've got quite a bit more. Now your portfolio has grown. We haven't had any crazy drastic crashes. You know, what do you do in this case? Because in this scenario, now you're actually running into the risk of just hoarding this money and pretty much dying with this gigantic nest egg when you could have actually, you know, done charity or enjoyed it with your family or things like that. So you're we're kind of going to the other side now. You know, wh- at what point would you say, okay, now let's make an adjustment, but the other way, because now we actually have extra money, the markets have been good to us. You know, how how do you go about tackling that adjustment? Or do you not? Do you just stick with the four four percent plus inflation? Yeah, I think it entirely depends on your personality. Like some people would just be like, hey, this is great because now I've got a bigger cushion. And cushions are great. You know, and so you know, we could end up getting a market crash, a really big one. But because I've got a nice cushion now, it's not going to affect me as much. And so, you know, there's that way of thinking about it. And I I fully respect that. Uh, On the flip side, as you suggested, there could be this moment where, you know, you're doing your inflation adjusted withdrawals and you notice that, hang on a second, the amount that I withdrew this year might end up being only 
two and a half percent of my actual portfolio value now because my portfolio value has grown so much. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because essentially now I'm withdrawing, you know, feasibly from this point and inflation adjusted two and a half percent from the actual current market value. So at that point, if somebody wants to spend more of that, their portfolio, uh, I think they could certainly do so. Do you have some sort of a framework or how much, like if that happened to you, let's say you started with a million and your 40K a year plus inflation adjustments is what you started with. And then fast forward a bit and now you're at, let's say 2 million and you're still only taking out 40K plus inflation. You know, how, where would you draw that line so that you adjusted, but you're not adjusting it in such a large amount where now you're putting your portfolio at risk again? Great question. I would adjust it based on 4% of the market value of the portfolio. Okay. And then go, okay, because it makes sense, doesn't it? So let's say you start out with a million dollars and you're withdrawing $40,000 a year and you're just, you're doing that, uh, in, you know, adjustments for inflation associated with that. So now you're whatever you, you know, after several years, um, you're at the point where maybe you're withdrawing whatever, 48, 48 grand in a given year. And your portfolio though has <clears throat> risen to $2 million. If you're taking out $48,000 from a $2 million portfolio, you know, you're only withdrawing what? What is that? 2.4%. Mm. So it's like, mm, okay, well, let's actually make an adjustment here and say, you know, reframe this based on 4%. I should be able to withdraw $80,000 from this portfolio's value. So now your portfolio is worth two grand. You could theoretically give yourself a really big raise up to that 4% threshold. Um, and again, that will really only happen if the markets really, really fly. But that's exactly what would have happened for anyone who retired in you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. That's exactly what would have happened as mm -hmm. markets have gone gangbusters since then. So yeah, they could theoretically do a reassessment on that. And then from that point, so then of course, they could withdraw 80 grand a year. And then from that point, if there's a market drop, I suggest a pullback. So again, don't, don't continue to give yourself inflation adjusted raises when the market, during years when markets drop, this will increase the odds of your portfolio lasting, uh, lasting, uh, quite significantly increase the odds of your portfolio lasting your lifetime. Gotcha. That's great. I, I'm loving this. This is such a good uh, framework. So it's, yeah, it sounds like your suggestion is start off with sort of the more traditional fixed 4% rule approach. And then if the markets actually do quite well, your portfolio is now bigger, switch to a variable percentage approach where it's a, a percentage of your actual portfolio, not based on that amount that you did, let's say 10 years ago or five years ago or whatever the case may be. So now it's that percent times whatever your portfolio is, let's say at the beginning of the year, as opposed to you know that, that 10 years ago, what 4% was of your portfolio value. And then just being willing to pull back and I guess not inflating your lifestyle to such an extreme where now you're like, oh, I need this 80,000 now. It's like, well, hold on, hold on. You need to be willing to pull back. Is, is that pretty much what you're saying that I yeah. understand that okay? Yeah, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because life is, you know, life is variable. Uh, life will have things that, um, you know, life will throw different th things at you, different situations. And it's nice to just to be able to bend a little bit with the wind on those things. And I also think that, you know, one of the things people often do, and I think, Here's something that can alleviate a lot of stress for people when they're thinking about retirement and they think they have to hit a certain number. Like, oh, I have to have an X number uh, based on the 4% rule. I need to have a certain amount of money in my portfolio for me to be able to retire. 
one of the things that I, I strongly recommend, and this is based on research that I did from the book Balance, um, and this is going to shock a lot of people, but on aggregate, if you retire early, you die early. So this isn't to say that someone that retires, everyone that retires at 30 or everyone retires at 40 um, isn't going to live as long. I'm not saying that. So a listener might be like, wait, no, my uncle Harry, he retired at 45 and he's 110. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, it's not going to be for everybody. But on aggregate, the research on this is really compelling. It's really solid. And so the idea that, hang on, um, <laughs> maybe I don't just want to retire at some point and absolutely do nothing. Um, one of the things that Daniel Kahneman talks about, he's a behavioral economist, won a Nobel Prize in, uh, in behavioral economics. And he says, we don't really know what we want. And that's kind of weird. Like, we don't know what will give us life satisfaction in the future. We're, we're a little bit like, um, like little kids, like, you know, Cornell, if you asked, if some, some adult asked you and me, and we were kids, you and I, whatever, we're not the same age, but say we were. And they're like, hey, Andrew, Cornell, I got this, I got this deal for you. Do you guys like chocolate? And we'd be like, yeah, we like chocolate. How about this? I'm going to give you nothing but chocolate for the rest of your lives. How'd that feel? You and I would be like, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> we think that that's what would make us happy. I'm guessing Cornell, you'd be the same as me, right? You'd like at six years old, you'd be like, yeah, I want chocolate. Oh, for, for sure. I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all in. But yeah. But you know, I make this analogy, but the reality is true in that, according to what Daniel Kahneman says, that we don't really know what will make us happy. So the idea of early retirement or the idea of retirement period, we think that's what makes us happy, but it actually ends up stripping us of purpose. So when you look at people who've experienced FI or who had early FI, and you, you, it doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter who they are, what will happen, what you'll find with them is that they will, they will continue to work in some capacity, but a different capacity. So that's the coolest thing about FI is that if you have a job you don't like uh, and you're financially independent, you know, basically you've got your, your, your FU size, of your portfolio, you can say to your boss, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. Um, and you can choose to do something that you like to do just on a part-time basis. And research suggests that if we can continue to work, now, if we continue to use our minds, especially when we're engaged with people of different age demographics, and we are going to be, as workers, we're going to be challenged by things, so we're using our brains. The research suggests that things like dementia and Alzheimer's are, to an extent, warded off. So they can actually fight off things like, and obviously there's a genetic component, so I'm not saying that everyone who works a really long time uses their brain, they're not going to get dementia. But, but the evidence on this is really compelling on aggregate. We end up living longer and we end up more satisfied with our lives if we continue to do something. So what I like about this, Cornell, is it, it alleviates a lot of the financial stress that people associate with hitting their number, like hitting my financial number, whereby at that stage, I have to live on my portfolio or I want to live on my portfolio and I'm just going to live this blissful life or I'm not going to be working any longer. Uh, that's, that's sort of, for most people, that's actually quite false because we do need to keep, it's important that we need to keep engaged and need to keep using our brain. And when we are earning a little bit of money, so whatever it is that we're enjoying, even if it's just like $15,000 a year, 
you're earning $15,000 a year working part-time doing something super cool that you love to do. To, to give you the equivalent cash flow of $15,000, you need something like an extra $380,000 in your investment portfolio based on the 4% rule to give you that 15 grand. Like that's just top of the top of the head math, but it's probably fairly close. So, so I think the idea, and I did talk about this in my last chapter with my book Balance, is the idea of fully retiring is a bit like eating chocolate every single day. You know, eventually it'll get a little bit old. It's not generally good for us, uh, much like chocolate every single day isn't good for us. Yet when we're striving for it, just like when we were kids and we were presented with that analogy of the chocolate, back to what Daniel Kahneman says, we actually don't know what will make us happy or content in the future. So looking at the science of it, uh, I think is pretty important. Yeah, that's pretty smart. The uh, That seems to be the most common mistake I see early retirees do uh, in the fire movement. Uh, like I'm one of them. We, we, we hit our fine number in our 30, in early 30s. Uh, you did as well. And other people that I speak to who also did the whole 30, being retiring in their 30s piece, every single one of them that I've talked to now do some sort of you know productive work, but it's on their own terms. And it's, you know, it, if, by someone looking from the outside, it could be seen as work. And I'm, you know, I'm using air quotes here, but to them, you know, you do it because it actually gives you happiness, fulfillment, growth, uh, creative growth, intellectual growth. Like it just, it, it checks so many buckets. At least I personally found this in my own scenario um, in terms of satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment. Um, like I, I, I listeners of the show know I, I lasted basically six months in a full retirement and I couldn't do it anymore. It was, it was so, it was so, unful- it felt so unfulfilling and it feels like you're just kind of wasting like, and again, it may be it's probably different for someone that's been, you know, working for 60 years and they're just like, they're done. They want, you know, like yeah. I'm not comparing myself to those people, but for someone for like a type A personality who's in his 30, his or her thirties to all of a sudden hang up your, your, I guess, tie or dress shirt or whatever, <laughs> and, and and just live a life of, like, I mean, to your chocolate example, right? We think that's what we want. And that's what I thought I wanted. Didn't even last six months before I needed something more. Um, and I'm and every single, like Bryce and Christie, who I'm not sure if you've talked to from Millennial Revolution, uh, like they're the other, like really young Canadian retirees. I know they've experienced, you know, sort of the same thing, um, like where they're still doing, you know, work quotation marks, even though it's just, but it's for enjoyment and yeah, it makes some money, but you know, that's not really the main priority. And, and it seems like you're, you're an example of that as well. Um, you've said you were five in your thirties as well. And yeah, you're still doing speaking, you're doing writing and um, you know, I've, <laughs> I'm willing to bet a lot that it's not for the money that you're doing it. Right. It's for other things. Yeah, exactly. It just, it's that engagement. It's fun for me. And again, um, you know, to reach financial independence gives us choice. And then what we do with that choice isn't, is entirely up to us, but looking again, behaviorally at life satisfaction and looking at the science behind it, it's kind of cool to, to put some of that science in play and recognize perhaps even ahead of time, um, not necessarily having to go through six months of just eating chocolate before you realize that, oh, you need to add some other things to the diet. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of cool to know that. And, I, and as I mentioned too, I think it alleviates some of that financial stress initially figuring that everybody has to hit or we, you know, an individual has to hit a certain number at a certain day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see being stressful. I think, especially if someone is, let's say fresh out of school, just getting started and someone's like, Oh, well you need a let's say someone's they read somewhere. Oh, you need a million dollars. Right. It sounds almost overwhelming. It sounds almost like you're just going to throw <laughs> in the towel because that's an obscene amount. Like you look at your 
cash flow, how much you can save every single month. I mean, it's going to take you forever to get there, right? It, it can be very, I think, discouraging. Whereas if you change your mindset and think of it differently, like what you're suggesting, where the goal is not to live a life of permanent leisure, but to kind of make it so that you have choice and you can work on your own terms and doing something you enjoy, that's that's the goal, right? Um, as opposed to just hoping to be able to live on a beach all day, because I'm pretty sure that gets boring for everyone, at least from everyone I've talked to. Yeah, I think so. And I think especially people that are like part of the FI community, they're, they tend to be they tend to be driven people. They tend to be purpose-oriented people. They tend to be goal-oriented people. Uh, they're often wired to to achieve. Yeah. And so <laughs> then you, you shut that down at 30, um, you know, the person will just eat themselves up from the inside. Uh, so yeah, all of the people in the FI community, whether we're talking about, um, you know, Christy and Bryce, or we're talking about Mr. Money Mustache, they do stuff. Like they do stuff. To, to keep them occupied and to keep them engaged because they, 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 we need it. Um, and like I say, you know, previously we, we live longer when we do that. When you look at the blue zones um, and this guy, Dan Butner identified, he wrote this great book called the blue zones and he identified regions in the world where people are, uh, where people live the longest. They tend to be regions in the world where older people actually stay actively involved in the community. And so they're, they're helping and they're working literally until the day they die. And it doesn't mean that, you know, they're working full time at stuff they hate. No, they're just, they're helping out. They're contributing. They're doing things that they, that they enjoy. The, the Japanese call this sense of purpose, ikigai. And in Japan, they have these, these places called silver haired centers. And they're basically for Japanese people of retirement age who can just pick up part-time work that they choose to. So they wander in there and they're given some kind of job the Japanese live longer than Canadians do. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons potentially for such legendary longevity is the fact that Japanese don't typically aspire to retire the way we do. They want to continue doing something. So, you know, you could be like, you know, pulling into a parking garage and some in Tokyo and there's some, some guy there and he's, directing you to wherever, wherever you're going to park. And that guy might be in his seventies and he might be a multi multi-millionaire, but he's just doing this thing a few hours a week because it gives him, uh, it gives him a, it gives him a kick. He enjoys doing it. Yeah. Uh, before we get into more questions, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about your new book called balance? I, I've read it. it. I found it incredibly helpful. Uh, definitely. I recommend it to all the listeners. Can you tell us a little bit more, um, a, a little bit more about it and where we can get it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking about that, Cornell. Um, so with, with balance, uh, I wanted to identify what true success was. And so we often think of success as money in the bank or big investment portfolio or like a, a great career. But when we ask people why they want those things, like, okay, why do you want that big portfolio? Oh, it'll either be like, so they can spend a bunch of money or so they could retire early. And then you keep asking why, well, why do you want to spend a bunch of money or, and, or why do you want to retire early? And so, and I love asking these questions. So like, you know, I'd be a pain in the ass to be stuck on a long airplane ride with, because I just love asking people questions and I love to discontinue to dig with like, well, why? And then they start reevaluating their whole life on the plane. <laughs> <I just mind-blown. laughs> you know, it's funny because you don't have to tell them anything. Like you don't have to tell them what you think, but just by asking why 
each and every one of us by digging in and asking why we are driven to do anything eventually ends up to be quite revealing. In the end, every response will come down to some sort of life satisfaction. They think it will make them happy, feel safe, content. So we are, we are purpose-driven for life satisfaction, no matter what it is we do. Why do you want to run that marathon? You know, why do you want to eat at that restaurant? Why do you want to buy that car? Why do you want to get that degree? If you keep digging with why, eventually it always comes down to life satisfaction. So what I wanted to identify was, hang on a second here. Uh, if life satisfaction truly is the end goal, then life satisfaction is success. That's what success is. So how do we maximize life satisfaction? So in the book Balance, I broke it down into four categories. Um, life satisfaction involves having enough money. It involves having good relationships. It involves having your health and it involves having a sense of purpose. It doesn't matter how big your investment portfolio is. If your relationships are a train wreck, you're not a success. Holistically, you're not a success because, and this isn't me just saying anecdotally, giving my opinion, because one of the massive variables for life satisfaction, in fact, the biggest variable, is the relationships that we have with others. And if our relationships with other people are not solid, then we are not maximizing life satisfaction. It doesn't matter how much money we have in the bank or how big our portfolio is. So with the book Balance, what I wanted to do is say, okay, so if everything hinges on life satisfaction, here are the four quadrants of it, having enough money, having good relationships, having health, and having a sense of purpose. Let's focus on those four things in the book Balance. That's great. In terms of the relationship piece, what are some actionable things that you think we can do with that pillar? They, you know, uh, let's, let's hinge that to the wealth component here or a financial independence component. Uh, and you don't even need to be financially independent to do this. But uh, I take this example of this family that I met in Costa Rica just in 2020, beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic. And they had chosen to, to quit their jobs for six months and to take their two children to Costa Rica and to work at these orphanages, just do a little bit of part-time help there, uh, have the kids learn Spanish and have them explore the country. So they had this mixed six-month plan. And it was just one of those things where because they had enough money in the bank, because they had a portfolio that was large enough for them to just say, I'm going to quit my job for six months because we can actually, they could sustain themselves for a few years, even if they couldn't get a job right away. But what they did, Cornell, was they spent quality time with their kids and they were I think about 12 and 13 at the time, but just great quality time with people. And, and that's really what it's all about. If we work our butts off for whatever it is we get, a little bit tunnel visioned and we're working super hard and we're not spending time with people we love. We're not building memories to the same extent that we could be. And men memories are far more valuable than material acquisitions or extra money in the bank could ever be. So we're building experiences with people we love and respect. So for goal oriented people, sometimes we lose sight of what's really most important. We'll be focused on career or focused on money but what we need to do is we need to set a goal at the beginning, perhaps even at the beginning of the year, 
Some people just naturally will spend loads of time with their family. They love doing it, just comes naturally. But not everybody, because they get they get a bit swept up in other things, work-related things. So the idea that at the beginning of the year, set some goals, figure out, okay, now what is it I'm going to do with my family and with my friends? And let's set like smart goals, like you would with a business, yep. like something that's specific, that, 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 that's, that you can measure, that's um, specific based on a time period and set those goals and then fulfill them because you know that Harvard is an eight decade long study. Uh, it's a Harvard study of adult development. And it suggests that, well, you know, they, they studied these people for eight decades and they studied their families. And then they, they added another inner city Boston group to the study and they found relationships are true keys to life satisfaction and longevity. Mm-hmm. Awesome! Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, this has been uh, this has been fantastic, and <laughs> I I feel so spoiled because I get to read your book and then I get to talk to you to elaborate on some other pieces to <laughs> flesh them out even more. So this is this is wonderful. Um, yeah. So so thank you so much, Andrew. Um, we've been talking now for uh, for about an hour now already. So uh, what I'm thinking maybe is I, I think we've already covered a lot of the uh, kind of key beginning pieces. Maybe if you're okay with it, we can sort of do. Uh, finish the episode for today and then do a part two and cover some of the other uh, questions that we had planned and just just to kind of spend two episodes because yeah. we we kind of we had i know we had our set questions but then we sort of went off on a few other things but which is fine i, I think those were really valuable yeah, yeah let's do it uh, but if you're up for it i'd love to do a do a, a part two um just so that we're not because because i feel if we go through all of them we'll be on here for two hours for sure <laughs> yeah 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 for sure that sounds great awesome but this has been uh, an, an absolute blast and and so with, with your book balance uh, like i said i, I love it i I think it's a must read um, for everyone. And, and, I, and I also just want to say, I really appreciate you doing what you do because, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to work. You don't have to educate, you know, work again, quotation marks here. You don't have to do this kind of these things. Uh, but yet you're, you're helping people, I think, that are on their way to FI, but also people that are like, like myself who are already there, uh, but you're sort of blazing the trail so that we don't kind of make the mistakes. And then, you know, I can kind of learn from you and then I can pass what I've learned on to others who are kind of maybe earlier in the path. Uh, so I really appreciate sincerely what you're doing from an altruistic perspective as well, where you're passing on your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience and a lot of research because you research this so much, you know, to people um, like myself and listeners of the show. And then we can kind of pass that on as well to help the earlier generation. So, so sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I, I appreciate what you do, especially because I know you don't have to do it, <laughs> but it really is appreciated and uh, it's not falling on deaf ears. And uh, thank you so much. And, and again, tell me, tell us again, where can we uh, buy your book? Where can we get it? Uh, I, I encourage everyone to check it out. So the release date for the book is January 18th. And so it's available at all major book retailers on Amazon. Um, so all online and record order retailers, major ones anyway, should be available at all of those uh, by January 18th. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show. Definitely check out Andrew's new book called Balance. And also a big thanks to Enriched Academy for letting Build With Canada listeners have that free assessment call with their coaches to see if there are any ways that your finances can be optimized. I've been a huge supporter of Enriched Academy over the years. They provide top-notch education and they don't sell any financial products. So I love how my Enriched Coach isn't trying to sell me anything. It's all focused specifically on optimizing my finances. I'm sure it'll be a huge benefit to you as well. And their average coaching client has increased their passive income by over $2,000, increased their net worth by 
over $44,000, increase their credit score by 25 points, and reduce their advisor fees by 1.25%, which translates to tens of thousands of dollars saved long term. So again, that page to get a free assessment call with one of their coaches is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash enriched. And last but not least, definitely a big thank you to EQ Bank for sponsoring the show. It's the bank that my wife and I use for our savings accounts. Not only is it free, but the interest rate that you get is as much as 30 times higher compared to some of the other banks in Canada. And it's not some temporary promotional rate either. I've been with them for years and found that they constantly adjust their rate to consistently have one of the highest rates in Canada. And if you're going to check them out, please go through my link as it really helps support the show. And that link is Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash eq that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter e and the letter q so that's it thank you for tuning in i really appreciate any support that you provide and i wish you a safe and happy month take care thanks for listening to the build wealth canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca